Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Go ahead and uh, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Galatians with me. Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we have been going through and are going to continue through the book of Galatians all the way through chapter 6. And we're taking a format that's a little different. We're looking at this and seeking to educate and equip ourselves with the ability to... Uh, study and grow in our ability to study the Word of God. And to open it up without someone like myself teaching it, and to be able to see the richness of Scripture. And to you, to do this, and to do this well, we've been using a method uh, that's three steps. Okay? Three steps. And I'm going to quiz you on this every week. I'll give you your cheat sheet. All right? O-I-A, and uh, I'm going to count to three, and I'll do it with you, but we'll see how loudly and proudly you can proclaim these. And if you're new with us, it's okay, you're off the hook. No, There's no grade on this one, okay? So, I'm going to count to three, and we're going to say I'm starting with the O, okay? One, two, three. Observation, interpretation, application, okay? Observation, interpretation, Application. These are our three stepping stones, if you will, that take us from not understanding what the text says to understanding it and ultimately applying it, leaving the text of Scripture with a mindset that goes, I know what God has called me to within the truth of His Word. And we've gone up to this point, we've gone through the mid-portion of Galatians chapter 2, And we understand Paul here, I'm just going to summarize because it's important we know the background context of this that is at the beginning of chapter 1. We know this is written by a guy named Paul. Everyone say Paul. And he's writing to the church is, plural, in the region of Galatia. And specifically, what we see him call the church in Galatia out on is that they are quickly deserting the gospel to which they've been called and are pursuing a different gospel. And he says, not that there is another gospel, but there's people who are trying to distort the true gospel. Gospel, in short, is good news. And the good news that Paul is speaking about is the good news that there is hope. There is salvation. But what he's speaking of is that there's not numerous salvations. There's not numerous ways that you can be saved. Which is why he's so concerned. Instead, the gospel that he proclaimed to the churches in Galatia, the good news was that you are dead in your sin, but Jesus came and died and rose that you could have life. If you have faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, at the end of the day, if you knew there was only one way for someone to have lasting hope and lasting salvation, 
If someone is drowning out in the middle of the water and there's only one real way that they're going to be saved, my prayer is that you would want to use that method to save them. That that's the truth you would want to proclaim. That's the life preserver you would want to throw to them. Us throwing the proverbial life preserver is us speaking the true gospel. And us holding each other to the standard that is established within the true gospel. Now, that kind of summarizes Paul's concern here, his concern with where the church of Galatia is going. And now we step into this next section where he starts talking a little more theological and contrasting a background within the law. Everyone say the law. And the law was what was established during the Jewish structure that God implemented. Ultimately, when he brought his people out of Egypt, he established this structure within the book of Leviticus through this guy named Moses so that the people had a standard to follow as they learned what it meant to truly follow after the Lord and to do what he had called them to do. Now, the tension arises in that as we merge into the New Testament, the Pharisees, everyone say Pharisees, they took the law and they made it a whole lot more specific. And I like to say that the Pharisees were list makers. They would look at a problem and they would make a list of things that someone would have to do to avoid having this problem. Well, they were really good list makers, but in the process became really bad theologians and they made themselves more in charge than God was and ultimately when God fulfilled his promises from the Old Testament and Jesus comes into the picture he fulfills the law and establishes a new covenant everyone say new a new covenant in his blood which is what we celebrate and remember when we take communion together We celebrate and remember the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that new covenant is the law is not abolished, but is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he told his disciples, I'm giving you a new command that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus, when asked what the two greatest commandments were, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments fulfill all the law and the prophets. And that's what Jesus said. So in this new covenant, there's this tension that arises because you have all these Jews who now are going, this is how we've always done it. Anyone ever heard that phrase before? Right? We get in those, we are legalistic by nature, even if we don't realize it. We like legalism because it gives us structure. And as much as we say we like freedom, we really like structure. Because then we can point to that structure and go, this is what you're supposed to do. That's why we like structure in our homes. This is what you're supposed to do, kids. Well, what about... Nope, this is what you're supposed to do. All right? And easily we get stuck in the same pattern of, this is just how it is. This is how it's always been. That's the tension here. Paul comes on the scene, along with the others, they're preaching this new covenant in Christ, this true gospel, freedom in Christ. And people don't like it. What about 
all the rules. So Paul comes out and he begins kind of this defense of the gospel and why it's so important that we grasp this. And so tonight, if you get nothing else out of this, I want you to jot this main idea down. This is the summary point of our whole time together, and we're going to observe through Scripture. The main idea is this. Christ accomplished what nothing else could. Christ accomplished what nothing else could. Now, if you were to have to summarize the gospel in one sentence, this would be one way you could do that. What's the good news? The good news is Christ did what nothing else could do. And it opens the door. Well, what did he do? He died to pay for our sins. He rose again to show that he and he alone has power over death, which means those of us who are dead in our sins through Christ can also have power over death. That's the good news. And a lasting hope that only comes through Christ. But there's still this tension. And I think we're going to resonate a lot with some of these tensions that arise. So let's jump in. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. And we're going to read a couple of verses and then we're going to stop and do some observing of the text. All right. So in Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, time to do some observing, church. So, the first thing out of the gate we notice is Cephas. He is the subject of this first verse. When Cephas came, we're we're in English class now, aren't we? When he came to Antioch, this is a place. These are all observations you can make and further detailed study you can do. Alright? We're going to move through this pretty quickly, but I'm going to try to summarize some of this. Paul says, I, that he's, he's the one who's the I here, and it's important we make that distinction. Paul, not Paul, Paul is the one opposing him being Cephas to his face. Now, this should cause us to ask a question. What is the question we should ask if we stop here? Who is Cephas? That's one thing. We should study that, okay? But in this simple phrase... I opposed him to his face. What question should we ask? Why Why did you oppose him to his face? What's your reasoning for this? So sometimes I will just write an arrow and I'll go, why? Well, it's answered in the next portion, right? Because he stood condemned. Now, this that, that end of that sentence should ask, cause us to ask another question. What's the question we should ask there? Why or for what? Paul, what is your reasoning for this? For what? And he explains in verse 12. For before certain men came from James. Now there's another person that's kind of important there. He, being Cephas, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself Fearing the circumcision party. Now, ultimately, we see what Cephas did. 
The question then becomes, how is this condemning him? What is wrong about this? Well, a couple important notes to make. First of all, James is most likely referring to James, the brother of Jesus, who Paul refers to earlier in Galatians. If you go back and you read Galatians chapter 1 and the beginning portions of 2, you see him referenced. Cephas, we talked about this a little bit last week, Cephas is also known as Peter or Simon. Okay? The disciple of Jesus, the same Peter who denied Jesus three times after he said, I'm not going to do that. The same Peter who Jesus said in Matthew, on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter's a well-known guy here, but Peter's not free from faults. And in fact, what we see happening is he was eating, Cephas was eating with the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. They were people who were not bound by the Jewish law. They were not born into a Jewish home. And so he's eating with them. He's conversing with them, which was frowned upon by much of the Jewish law. No, you, you separate yourselves. Jesus broke that stigma. One example of Jesus breaking that stigma is in John chapter 4, when Jesus sits down and has a conversation with the Samaritan woman. That was unheard of in their culture. Why? Well, the Samaritans, they're not Jews. They're, they're Gentiles. You don't talk with them. It was a racial divide and tension within the pages of Scripture. Okay? That still is existing here. So Cephas is coming into the picture. He's eating, sitting and eating with the Gentiles. Well, then they came. They being who? James and certain men. The certain men that came from James. Okay? So James sent whoever these guys were. And when they came... Cephas separated himself. He backs up. So you can imagine the picture here. He's eating with the Gentiles. He's hanging out with them. They're growing in relationship. Suddenly, these Jews come into the picture. Those of the circumcision party. That's how we know they were Jews. And he gets scared and backs away. Now, let's move forward a little bit here. In verse 13, it says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So now it's not just Cephas that's acting in response to this. Now it's the other Jews too. Now they're all, well, we're not going to do anything with the Gentiles. We're not going to do that. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the simplicity here is Paul confronts Cephas right in front of everybody. He confronts him to his face. Dude, what are you doing? But an important question to ask, and one that can draw application for us, is in verse 14... When it says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, then I confronted them. What's the question we should ask when we encounter this phrase? What is the truth of the gospel and why is their conduct contrary to that? What makes their conduct contrary to the gospel? Now, if we, I'm going to reference a couple different passages here. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given you a spirit of what? 
not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Very specific. In other words, you're not to be driven away from God's calling on your life by fear. If we are in Christ, God has called us in Christ to proclaim the gospel message. And if anything, fear-related keeps us from doing that, then that is not a healthy fear. That is the fear that is spoken against throughout Scripture. Now, the other side of this is in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, a passage commonly quoted during Christmas. We should quote this way more than on Christmas, by the way. The angels declare that they are bringing good news of great joy, which will be for whom? All people. Have you ever noticed that they proclaimed the gospel right there? We bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. We bring gospel message to you. This is good news. Today, in the city of David is born a Savior for all people. So where is it contrary to the gospel? The gospel, the good news is for whom? All people. So if Peter is withdrawing himself because he's fearful of his peers, that's the issue. That's where he's contrary to the true gospel. So here's the application question for you to wrestle with. What fears in your life keep you from living out the good news that we have freedom in Christ? What ungodly fears exist in your life right now that keep you from proclaiming the gospel? Or that keep you from stepping into relationship with someone? And we can make up all kinds of excuses. Cephas, his excuse was, oh man, my Jewish friends are coming into town. I don't want them to think ill of me because I'm hanging out with the Gentiles. So I'm just going to distance myself. And I fear that we often, in modern day Christianity, could be convicted of doing the same thing. Where we look at a group of people and we distance ourselves. Maybe we do it subconsciously and we're not actively trying to, but it doesn't matter. The gospel, if we really believe this is good news and it's the only life preserver that's going to save someone then it doesn't matter who they are or where they're from or what they've been through or what they're experiencing. We are going to proclaim this hope. Now, to move on from there, let's look at verse 15. In verse 15 and 16 here, it says, We ourselves are Jews by birth. This is Paul speaking about himself and the others and not Gentile sinners. Yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one, everyone say no one, no one will be justified. Now, here's an observation, okay? What are some key words that are repeated throughout this These two verses. Shout them out. Justified, okay? Justified is right there. If we keep going, it's right here. Okay? 
It's right here. Justified. This is an observation technique. We need to look for words that are repeated. If they're repeated, they're important. We need to take note. What's some other ones that we see? Law. Law is another one. Over and over we see that. What else? Works. Works is another one. Okay? Now, ultimately, if we identify these are words, if we don't know if these are important words, and we don't know what these words mean, we shouldn't move on until we do. This is the interpretation portion of this. Okay? So, justified, what does it mean? Simply put, justified is to be put in right relationship with God. If you want to simplify it further, it's to be counted innocent. Justified. If I am justified, I am in right relationship with God. Now, faith, I'm going to give you a specific scripture passage for faith. Faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I am confident and assured in what is hoped for. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in a future eternity. It's not in this earth or this world. And therefore, I have faith. Regardless of what happens, I have faith in the one who's in control. The conviction of things not seen. Justified faith. Now, if we go back to our passage, there's a couple of things that we need to identify here. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not, everyone say not, is not justified by works of the law. They're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And he clarifies this. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order... To be justified by faith in Christ and not, everyone say not, not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you ever wonder, is this really true? Is no one justified by their works? I'm going to emphasize in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, for by grace... You have been saved through what? Faith. Everyone say faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a big difference, church, between walking in good works God has established and being saved by them. Good works cannot justify us before God. Why? Because our good works are never enough. At what point have we done enough to be justified and counted in right relationship with God? At what point would we be a lost cause if it depended solely upon our own effort? At what point could we no longer have confidence that we are saved and promised eternal life? If we were justified by works, we would all be without hope. Justification, being in right relationship with God, can only come through Christ. There is no other good news than that. 
Now let's look at the last section of this text, verses 17 through 21. But if in our our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now I want to pause here for a second and understand this. In the context Paul is speaking about, we too were found to be sinners. A sinner here is someone who is without law. In other words, someone who has missed the mark. The law made very clear that we were not able to save ourselves by what we do. No one could meet the standard. And if you ever question that, consider the fact that Adam and Eve had one rule to follow. So if you ever think, well, it's just so much, that's why it's not attainable. One rule, people. One rule. And still chose selfishness over relationship with God. From the very beginning. Sinner equals without law. Paul here is identifying that because followers of Christ are not bound to the law, that does not mean that Jesus condones or encourages sin. And we can only imagine that this had to be an argument that the Jews were having about the Gentiles not following the law. Well, you're just condoning sin. Well, Paul is speaking to this, and it's not the first he's spoken of it. In Romans 6, verse 1, he says, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So Paul calls out sinful behavior. But he doesn't put people back in the slavery bondage of the law in order for them to be justified. Because he recognizes in the true gospel, you are only justified through Christ. It's the only hope. Now in verses 19 through 21, this is where we see our main idea, church. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's the summary of this, church. In Christ... I die to myself. Under the law, Paul identifies that he had to die to the law in order to live so that he might live to God. Maybe. In Christ, we die to ourselves. And it's no longer we who live, but Christ indwelling the follower of Christ. Him internally with the hope and the promise of eternity. Him empowering. Him bringing peace. Him bringing wisdom. 
Him bringing discernment. And church, when we put ourselves back into bondage, we also, in essence, often unintentionally nullify the grace of God and say that it must be through law. And if we say that salvation must be through law, then we, in essence, say Christ died for no purpose. If we could do it, we wouldn't need Christ. Christ accomplished what nothing else could. Church, at the end of the day, this is what I want you to hold on to. No matter what is going on around us in our culture, if we could do it, we wouldn't need Christ. I can't do it. Of my own strength, of my own power, I can't do it. I need Him in my life. And at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself this question. Is Christ the driving force in my life? Do I understand and believe the true gospel? That I am only saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. And the only hope I have is a hope that's rooted in what He has done, nothing I have done. And if you have not believed that, today is the day, church. Today is the day for you to say, I believe and I fully recognize I cannot do it on my own. Some of you may hear that for the first time. Others of you, you've heard this before. But it doesn't mean you're living like you know it. And you're trying to do it yourself. You've put yourself back in a box, back into bondage, and you're not walking in the freedom that is found in Christ. And so I want to challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you wherever you're at to consider whether you really truly believe in the one gospel. I want to challenge you to consider whether you're trying to do this on your own. Because if you are, there's no hope of justification of being in right relationship with God if you're trying to do it on your own. It's not going to happen. But you have a Savior who died to bring life and hope and joy and peace regardless of your scenario, regardless of your situation. And He does not change. So here's what I want to do, church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and I want to read a section of Scripture out of Romans 8 before we close with this medley of songs tonight. And so I'm just going to have you join me by standing in honor of God's Word. And I want to read this for us. Romans 8, starting in verse 1, says this. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Tonight, I want to offer you an invitation to believe. To believe in the hope that can only come through Jesus. And so whether you are here and you're hearing this for the first time, you're online and this is the first you've heard the gospel truth. Or you are sitting there going, I've heard this before, but I have wandered so far from this truth and I'm trying to do it myself. But I recognize for the first time that Jesus accomplished what nothing else could. And that's where my hope has to be found. Whether it's in a prayer or just a statement that I believe, I choose to believe. I want to encourage you as we play this last song, to take whatever posture you feel necessary. If you feel you want to stand and just praise the Lord by raising your hands, you do that. If you need to sit and pray in confession and repentance, you do that. If you need to kneel, whether it be up here at these steps, or in your pew, or at home, or wherever you're listening to this, if you're in the car and you need to pull over, you do that. I don't want anyone to leave here without first knowing that your only hope is in Christ. Father, as we close this time, may you be the one who's glorified. May you be the one who we fix our eyes on. And may anyone who's listening to this right now, who doesn't know, who hasn't believed, may your spirit work, that your spirit would indwell and empower Lord, that that empowering and boldness would start with us, your people.
Lord, we commit this all to you in Jesus' name.